0: Are you a physician looking to take your own profitable medical expert witness practice to the next level? Medicalexpertwitness.com is the ultimate program to learn how to brand yourself as an expert witness and get yourself seen. Sure, building a reputation in the field from scratch has its challenges, but don't let them hold you back. Medicalexpertwitness.com understands what you're facing as they were once there too. In fact, 10 years ago, CEO Dr. Jordan Romano started his own consulting in the medical malpractice space. His experience has included providing expert witness testimony, reviewing medical records, and analyzing complex medical cases. Dr. Romano has become well-versed in the intricacies of medical malpractice law and has worked on cases for both plaintiffs and defendants in nearly every state in the U.S. And now, his company provides medical professionals with the tools and support they need to supercharge their career as a medical expert witness. Sounds great, doesn't it? Absolutely. Just imagine having the support you need to brand yourself as a medical expert witness too. Now that's powerful. So what are you waiting for? Visit medicalexpertwitness.com today and gain access to a mentor who can connect you with attorneys in need of your specialized knowledge, expand your network, find new cases, and watch your business thrive. We used to talk about cultural competence, but that has been reframed as cultural humility. So, is there any point in learning about the cultures of your patients? Of course there is. But how, when there are seemingly countless cultures and subcultures? We'll find out on today's episode. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs Cycle. Dr. Raj Sundar, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Brad. So tell us a little
0: about your practice and your podcast.
1: I'm a family medicine physician, which means I take care of people from birth to death, so all ages. I actually also do obstetric care now and deliver at one of our nearby hospitals. I also have a leadership role within my organization. And as you said, I host a podcast called Healthcare for Humans, whose goal is to educate clinicians on caring for culturally diverse communities so they can be healers.
0: So what you're trying to train people in is cultural competency, right? You're trying to teach people about all the different cultures that are out there so that we can be a little more understanding of where they're coming from and therefore treat them better, establish a stronger
1: relationship and stronger understanding, correct? This sounds like a 1980s definition of cultural competence. (laughs) I think we've evolved a lot, not to make fun of (laughs) you.
0: I'm a middle-aged white male. So this continues to be my definition from the 80s. Yes.
1: I think that's many people's definition still. And I would be incorrect to say that I didn't believe that in some sense, but I think doing this work, it's helped me grow from that understanding. Because at least when I was in medical school, that's what I was taught, is this understanding that if you learn about cultures a little bit, then you'll know going in how to care for them better. Can I ask you, what was your education like about different cultures in medical school or residency?
0: Yeah, there are people different than you out there. I mean, in otolaryngology, we don't really cover cultural competency. In undergrad, I read, the spirit catches you and you fall down right? Which is, I think everyone references when they're talking about cultural competency. And that was in, God, I graduated college in one, So it was probably like 99 when closer to the 80s that you were referring to. <laughs> and then in med school, I think they were sticking with the same definition, which was, you know, just trying to be more understanding of people who are different from you, which sounds reasonable. And I was going to dovetail it to the question, like, is it a fool's errand? And I think that's where you're kind of going with it. So am I correct?
1: Yeah, I have probably two responses to this. I'll say one is, yes, it's a bit of a fool's errand to think you can understand all cultures because there's literally millions of cultures in this world. Because even if you think you know Indian culture, you probably don't know my version of Indian culture because I'm South Indian. I'm from Tamil Nadu, which is not what people commonly think of. People think of chicken tikka masala and naan when they think of India, but I eat dosas and idli's And actually, my family is from a village in South India, so that has a specific culture. I don't expect you to know that. But I think with cultural competence is there's a few limiting factors. What I usually talk about is three of those factors that I think informs why it evolved into something different, which I'll talk about. One is othering, which means that I'm the normal person and I'm studying this other community who's different than me, who's strange, unique. Maybe I'll learn a little bit about them. So then when I see them at some point, I know what to do. And then I can give them the recommendation that they should understand, but they don't. It's almost like we're studying a zoo animal because often it's like academic researchers or healthcare institutions talking about communities. I was thinking that
0: it was sounding that way, but if it came out of my mouth, it would have it wouldn't have sounded so appropriate. But yes, it's like going to a museum, right? Or going to a zoo and observing. Someone from the outside in.
1: Yeah. The second part of it is it can be stereotypical. I mean, all culture work can be stereotypical because once you learn a little bit about India, sometimes people try to impose that definition of what Indian means on me. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of a different kind of Indian, as I said. With cultural competence, it was like part of the work to be stereotypical because you learn about a community, you learn these three values, and then you go into interactions assuming this person holds those values. And then the last is this idea of competence. Somehow you can learn about a culture, which actually people within the community actually have differing views of what their own culture is, so it's just hard to do. So that whole paradigm of cultural competency evolved into cultural humility, which I think many people started learning beliefs in the last decade or so, which is, it's more self-reflective of you understand your own values and beliefs and understand you have a perspective. Other communities have a different perspective, so then you understand the gap. But still, there's that gap, and it wasn't helpful in delivering better care. Then there was a terminology called cultural safety. I don't want to lose people in all this jargon, but I do think it's helpful to understand the concepts, why it's evolved.
0: It's too late. Attrition. It's already happened. Sorry, just kidding. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Cultural safety was terminology in New Zealand formed by the Maori population there, which is the indigenous population who said, in order for us to get better care, we also need you to understand the historical and structural causes of why we're suffering the way we are. It's not just, you need to understand how we say hi, how we say hello, how we dress, but you need to understand the history of why there has been a genocide of our population, you as a healthcare provider. And you need to understand the structural causes of why we can't get the food we need to be healthy and how that's affecting our health, because then you can care for us in the way we want to and be better advocates in the community. So it shifts completely this understanding of what it means to understand a community and support them and help them heal and care for them.
0: What was the response of the healthcare system to that push by the Maori people?
1: I am guessing although I don't know the history well they've embraced it now and I see it a lot of in their official documents but I suspect in the US which hasn't fully been I'll say embraced as well resistance cuz that's often the first reaction because it seems like so much responsibility
0: it's a lot of work and you get defensive yeah exactly because you realize that you are the ones in power and the ones in power historically were the ones that created these problems and inequities.
1: Yep. And that happens a lot in equity work. And I think a lot of people have talked about that is that first reaction is defensiveness. But we need to get past that because that is not the reaction that's going to help us improve our communities and the health of our communities.
0: I mean, it sounds like the identical thing is happening with the indigenous population here in America, as well as with the black population here you need to understand the history of how this happened and how our people have evolved within these systems to develop the problems that we have. And once we're there, then we can start working together to address them. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And I'll go back to your question about, is it a fool's area to understand all cultures? Yes. You should still learn about the cultures that's in your community. I'm not asking you, Brad, to learn about cultures in Seattle or Washington state. Of who is living by you and which communities do you interact with? And have you done the work to understand their history and why their health is the way it is?
0: Well, I grew up an Ashkenazi Jew on Long Island, and I'm treating a lot of Ashkenazi (laughs) Jews on Long Island. And I studied for my boards a lot of disorders that occur in the Ashkenazi Jew population. So, yes, but no, but you're right. That's not like who I exclusively treat. I actually have a lot of patients from Ecuador, I have a lot of patients from El Salvador. I have a lot of patients from the Caribbean, you know, from Haiti. So yes, there are a lot. But to your point, it's not that many because people tend to move where they're people like them. Like they, they move as communities. They help each other find jobs. They help each other survive. To your point, they're a finite number to learn about. And so to do the work, it sounds like it'll be more fulfilling too, because then you can connect with them more. You can show them that you did the work. They'll appreciate it. They'll trust you more. And it doesn't sound that hard.
1: I'm supposed to say all those things, Brad. You said it for me. <laughs> exactly. All of those things. I'm going to start important. hosting
0: your show. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. An episode a couple of months ago with John Schneider, who is a, a rhinologist at WashU. He talks a lot about communication. And one of the things we were talking about is how we have these like spiels in our head because we say the same things over and over. I mean, probably not you because you do family medicine, You do really everything with us you know ear nose and throat not that many things we say the same things over and over and so one of the things we talked about is the benefit of developing these spiels which is a yiddish word actually no, oh, really? the ashkenazi jewish reference we can't think of a better word for it the benefit is it lightens the cognitive load so that you can actually spend more cognitive energy paying attention to the patient and how much they're understanding what they're understanding if they're feeling uneasy really it allows you to really get a better feel of where they are. So my question is, people from different cultures communicate differently. And so, you know, whether they're looking at the floor or looking you in the eye or kind of shifting in their chair or things that I would assume would be cues that they don't understand or they're uncomfortable or they're upset may not work with members of other cultures. How do I manage that?
1: Yeah, I remember actually just finished listening to that episode. I think he also talked about how it's a way for us to think out loud and make decisions too, right? And we often don't center the patient in what our spiels are. We're just doing it for our Mm. own good or processing. So I want to acknowledge both of those points. And then I think you made the point about where you're looking, potentially your eye contact or whether you're looking at the floor, like how do you interpret all those cues? So I'm gonna have a 2 prong answer to this. One is there's benefit in understanding the specificity of each culture. As I said, like, who are the communities in your culture? And then understanding what their typical mannerisms can help you connect better with them. And the second part is, as you said, paying attention and responding to the community in the way they want to can also make you a better clinician. Now, I just felt like I talked a bunch of abstract principles and actually doesn't make any sense in this work. So I like to use specific examples. So I'll actually use specific examples that I've had recently. So one is with the Ethiopian community. I was talking to somebody that I've seen a lot. It was New Year's and I brought up the fact that it wasn't their New Year's, meaning I said, how's your Christmas? Because I knew the Ethiopian community. I was thinking about it and their calendar is like four or five years behind. It's no kind of funky calendar. And they celebrate Christmas during what our New Year's is. And everybody probably has that sense where everybody says Happy New Year's for like four weeks after New Year's because nobody knows when to stop. So, like imagine this person who knows it's not their New Year's, but they're not going to explain to everybody that it's not. But I was like, hey, how was your Christmas? They're like, oh, what a surprise. So one, there's that surprise of somebody actually cared enough to know about my culture that now they're saying it. And then they actually respond with the authentic answer because they haven't had a moment to share it. And that wasn't the purpose of the visit. But as you said, small moments are what builds trust. So that was a huge moment with that visit. And going forward, he knows that I cared enough to learn something about it. Because with a lot of communities, immigrant, refugee, you can name whatever community, most of their life, they're trying to fit into the dominant culture, which is often white American culture, just because of the demographics here in America. And what that means is that they don't expect other people to learn about them as much. So it's actually a nice surprise and a small effort for us to make to learn about the culture. So let's say
0: you're recognizing that it's a culture that you're not so familiar with. How do you respectfully inform patients of your lack of familiarity with their culture that they can advocate for themselves and make sure that they get the care they need?
1: I think I'll challenge that question because so many community members feel like they have the burden of educating others about their culture, which is a lot if you go through the number of interactions somebody has trying to get care in a healthcare system. But I also acknowledge what you're asking is you want to be humble and acknowledge that you don't know as much as you do for the patient. I want to
0: push back on this a little bit because we said at the beginning of the show, right there, like a finite number in our area. Like wherever we live there's a high concentration of a few cultures. You don't have to learn about all of them. But every so often, someone's going to come into your exam room and it's going to be something that you're not familiar with. So you want to still be respectful about acknowledging your own ignorance. So yes, you're shifting the burden to them and the burden's been on them since they've been in America. You can't know everything about everyone.
1: Yes, I love this challenge. This is so great, Brad. Okay. In that way... My response is, you want to acknowledge that you're not shifting the burden because that's what disproportionately people do. And instances when it is hard for you, no, because you can't know every culture, there's a curiosity curiosity that comes from, I think people have felt of putting people into boxes. And the typical question that you think of is like, what are you? <laughs> right? And people say that in that tone sometimes because they don't understand. And I've gotten that question. And it's a very aggressive tone that is not welcoming to connection. I'll say it that way. Or even if I don't use that accusative tone, like what are you is dehumanizing in a way versus like, "Where do you call home? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't take care of a lot of patients from there. Just let me know if I make a mistake, but I want to care for you the best way I can. And that's a different introduction compared to the other one. And there's both a confidence and humility that's expressed in that.
0: Oh, interesting. What about like, I'm thinking about alternatives to that because it seems like there's some options there. Oh, that's a really, mm, no, you're right. That's not going to sound. I was going to say, that's a really interesting sounding name. Where is that name from? Yeah, maybe that didn't sound so good. I don't know if
1: that sounds great.
0: That's the whole like in a zoo, right? Like you're this observer, uh, this outside observer looking in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll stick with you. Where do you call home? And they're going to be like, Seattle, where do you call home?
1: Yeah. And I always acknowledge this. As a white man, you're often in a disadvantage because people have this historical memory of being treated like they're in a suit. And unfortunately, that is a disadvantage you're going into. And I wish there was an easy answer because sometimes when I say it, people are more generous and graceful.
0: As Speaking for the white men out there, we've lived our lives with enough advantage. If this is one of the disadvantages that we have to deal with, then so be it. I think we should be able to handle it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then I think the more you instill trust, because we talk about trust a lot, which requires reliability and care where you reliably express curiosity, not in a way that you're in a zoo, but I'm hoping to care for you better. And in addition, there's a lot of people from your community coming. I'll do the work to learn about your community so we can make sure you have the best experience possible. That's a different perspective and long term that earns trust in the community.
0: So let's say it is a culture that you're familiar with, right? You don't necessarily speak the language, so you've got a translator, right? Sometimes we use the word interpreter, but I'm specifically choosing the word translator for for this question. And you in particular, because you are so cognizant of the gaps in your knowledge about these communities, right? So when you're treating a patient and you have a translator who's interpreting the language, is there any way to utilize them so that they're also helping you to interpret the cultural cues and importance of the culture that you might not otherwise know about?
1: Yeah, there's probably interpreting 101, which is what, where, we all, where we are taught to look at the patient, not the interpret directly, make sure you acknowledge everybody in the room. But this question is, I'll say, interpreter 102, the next class that we're never taught. And it's a good question that doesn't have easy answers. I will say that many people have probably been in a situation where they've talked for two minutes and the interpreter talks for like 30 seconds. They're like, there is no way you interpret everything I said. Or they just turn back to you and say they said no after the patient talks for three minutes. So actually, more often than not, interpreters do some cultural interpretation in a way they think is appropriate. And the question for you as the provider is always checking and rechecking if the patient understood what you said through visual cues. At least that's what I sound most meaningful for me. We talk about like the sense in people's eyes and their whole body when they understand something, when they really understand it rather than just nodding their head and looking for that, and also using the interpreter as a cultural mediator, which isn't officially sanctioned by the interpreter literature or policy, which is that the interpreter is supposed to, quote unquote, not be in the room. They just say exactly what you say, and then they translate, interpret back what the patient says. But there's a way to help the interpreter feel like he's part of this relationship, because there's a power dynamic too where you talk to them ahead of time, if you have the time. I know everybody has a busy practice. And also make room for the interpreter sharing anything the patient has said before the visit. Because I'll say a lot of patients wait with the interpreter, if it's in person, in the waiting room for a long time. they are probably shared with them so many problems or things they don't understand. And then they come into the room and you ask them a question, they just nod their head. And the interpreter feels like he can't tell, say anything else other than what's being said in the room. So there's a way to build relationships with interpreters.
0: Maybe you shouldn't be keeping the patient so long in the waiting room, Dr. Sundar. If you listen to
1: some of my older episodes, it might help you move. Maybe it's ultimately an efficiency problem. What are they doing in the waiting room? <laughs> a couple episodes on charting. Just kidding. Culturally responsive charting. That'll be the next episode. Yeah, so there's actually ways to be creative with that. But I'll say most people struggle with it. And I don't think we talk about it. So you
0: just mentioned, like, observing their body language, right? Their nonverbal cues to see if there's understanding. So the implication there is that is Mm cross-cultural. That's correct? So you'd be able to interpret that from people from all different
1: parts of the world? People always want me to make universal statements about culture. (laughs) And I'll say, doing this work, often contradict myself because there are some things that are (laughs) universal. And there's some things they're not. Listen, so, I'm not trying to poke holes in your story. But I'm just trying to make a point you could always find an example of a community yeah. that is the opposite. Yeah. Quietness and stillness is their way of expressing understanding. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're like, yeah,
0: you're right. Well, actually, that dovetails to the next question, which is Are there common threads that you've identified between cultures that may otherwise seem very different? Right? Maybe they're from different parts of the world and
1: there's some commonality. Yeah. Probably going to answer in a way that maybe you're not expecting. I will say that there's a common perspective that we need to understand the history of the community. So let me use some examples. I interviewed the native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community because we have um, a lot of people from that community in the Pacific Northwest, also the Cambodian community. With the native Hawaiian community, example that I often use that resonates with people that maybe they didn't learn in their cultural competency module is. When people say hi to Native Hawaiian, people, they often say hi, and then they're looking for ways to connect, and they talk about their vacation in Hawaii. Oh. I know. There's already a side.
0: Yes. Their imperialist vacation. Yeah.
1: Yes. But also, I've probably done it. Not in a way of like thinking about imperialism and colonialism. Hey, like you're from Hawaii. I went there. I want to talk about how much I loved it. Your land is beautiful. You know, there's a generous way of interpreting (laughs) it. But if you don't understand the history, which is in the episode three or four with Dr. Miley Taoli, she talks about so eloquently that this person came here because she couldn't afford to live in Hawaii and probably can't visit her own family in Hawaii. And then you come here talking about your vacation as a way to connect. Automatically, it's so clear you don't get it. You don't understand our community or me and the ways that I suffer. And now I have to share my vulnerabilities with you and I have to trust you to follow your recommendation and follow up with you. No thanks. Small ways that make a huge difference. And the commonality of understanding history, I'm going to use another example, which is, I'll do the Pacific Islander one. So Pacific Islands, which a lot of people probably don't have the granular understanding of all the different Pacific Islands out there, like American Samoa, Fiji, Tonga, there's so many, but they're lumped together called the Pacific Islands. And there's different ways to categorize that. But one Pearl that came out of that episode I did with Joseph Seiya, who's a community leader for the Pacific Islander community, is that we know that quality outcomes for Pacific Islander are not great. You talk about cancer screenings, you talk about diabetes control, but do you understand why? Because mostly I hear from providers that are blaming our cultures, that are blaming our bodies, saying we're not taking care of ourselves. But our whole like ecosystem of nutrition has been decimated because there was this agreement in the past called COFA where there's nuclear testing done in Marshall Islands, and then now we can't actually eat our own food. And then we come here, there's this issue called targeted recruitment for chicken factories, because it's easier for chicken factories to recruit Pacific Islanders than people from other countries because of visa and how that worked. And then did you know about welfare reform where Medicaid was not available to us during that process? If you understood all that, would you look at this problem differently? And would you work with us on different solutions? because we're suffering in profound ways, but we need more people to help us change the systems. And we don't need you blaming us for everything. And that historical component becomes an important part of all of health inequities and something we don't acknowledge enough. And it could keep going with every community. That's why I introduced the concept of cultural safety before too, because it's really resonated with me when I'm hearing from community leaders.
0: Yeah, that's a story that's specific to them, but at the same time sounds so universal. Mm-hmm. So let's try and make it a little more lighthearted for a moment. <laughs> that was clearly very important. But you do learn a lot of interesting stuff about different cultures from doing your podcast. What are some of the more interesting things that you've learned? I mean, I don't want you to be like, okay, well, I got to pick. If I don't, it's like picking your favorite kid, right? But still, what are some of the more interesting things? Just a couple things.
1: Well, where do I start? it? I'll say, felt really happy from the things that I was saying. I know that's true. There are really moments of joy when people feel like you understand their suffering too, because then they feel like you can join them. And then there's actually a belief and you can create additional moments of connection. I feel that in my interviews sometimes too. So I want to note that because we are making this transition.
0: That was a much better transition than mine. I think keep that.
1: But I think I... Talked about food a lot. I actually love talking about food because I love trying out new food. And it gives me an excuse to try new restaurants. That has evolved because initially I used to talk about, you know, tell me about your food. How do we change it because of, you know, diabetes, hypertension, whatever health issue we're talking about. And then it slowly became clear. It was almost always suggesting that we should be transitioning to like the Mediterranean diet, eat some more fish or wine, which isn't the goal of nutrition but it is in a healthcare context where we only have like there's something
0: called carnization where like slowly everything is evolving to become more crab like and then what you're doing is you're you're pushing every culture to become more mediterranean diet like you're pushing Yeah all the-
1: exactly so i've learned to appreciate food for what it is which is ways that people celebrate ways that people feel connected to home think about your favorite meal and what it actually means to you and the way they connect To culture with food too so you have to be really intentional because we take it too lightly to ask people to change their diet and nutrition so yes you don't want to shy away from giving any dietary recommendation you also don't want to recommend complete changes in dietary patterns into something an american diet i don't know if anybody ever recommends an american diet (laughs) don't do that either way it's like small adjustments while acknowledging the importance of it in their diet I think we talked about it, or you listed this question about Chong community. It's come up in other Asian communities that I've interviewed, talking about fish sauce, where if somebody has elevated blood pressure or hypertension, that's one thing to say, don't eat salt, eat DASH diet, which if people don't know what the DASH diet is, there's a specific diet that's been studied for hypertension. Instead, you acknowledge that you understand a little bit about their diet, but honor their dietary preferences. And then lead with questions saying, is there a possibility? I know that often your food, there's a lot of fish sauce and it's tasty, but is there a way to reduce that? Because we know sometimes that can elevate your blood pressure. So that is something actionable and something people are willing to change a little bit instead of you saying, don't eat fish sauce or eat this completely different yes. diet.
0: Yeah. But when you're making your recommendations on paper, you have to make sure it complies with your MIPS so that you get your Medicare reimbursement, I think you might still have to write reduced salt intake recommending the DASH diet.
1: You don't think reduced fish sauce will meet the criteria?
0: (laughs) I don't think so. When the people making the criteria and checking those boxes look like me, probably not.
1: I know. I'm spoiled because I'm in a value-based system.
0: It makes a lot of sense. The value-based system makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, there's, well, that's for a different podcast. Actually, I talked about that a while ago. And if you want to listen to about the fact that the value-based system isn't currently working, listen to the episode with Dr. Bapu Jena, Freakonomics, India.
1: Each one of my segments will be referring to another episode.
0: Is there one thing that you would like to tell the audience? Just one thing to tie this together, an interesting point, something that I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about, anything that you would like to add before we wrap up?
1: Brad, I think you started this journey with podcasting to be a better doctor. And I think one of your in is, what did we miss when we were learning about the Krebs cycle? And I want people to remember how much time we spent learning really random things that we never think about, and also diseases that are prevalent less than 1%. So for me, I think it's completely possible for us to learn about the history and culture of the communities that you are part of. And the questions that I want people to ask is, what is it Take to build a healing relationship? What do you need to know to take care of the patient in front of you? And how do you not place that burden on the patient, especially if you're going to see them over and over or their family or their community is now part of your community?
0: Amazing. So where do we find your podcast? What's that name again? And where do we find you online?
1: The podcast is called Healthcare for Humans. It is found on all podcast platforms. You can also log on to healthcareforhumans.org. There's also a way to contact me there. We have an Instagram page. Everything's connected on the website.
0: Dr. Raj Sundar, thank you so much for all the great work you're doing, and thank you for your time. Ready to take the first step in achieving your medical expert witness goals? Book a free 30-minute call and grow your own profitable medical expert witness practice. Visit medicalexpertwitness.com and start making a difference in the legal field with your medical expertise today. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something, it would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice, or financial advice, or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.